Um, we're going to continue our sermon series in Isaiah. Through Advent, we've been looking at the prophecies of this Old Testament book of Isaiah. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. In our Advent series, we've been looking at four different themes, and we've been looking at hope, love, joy, peace. And what we see in these themes is that Isaiah prophesied that there was a baby that was going to be born, a man who would be God himself, Emmanuel, God with us, and he has come to us in Jesus. And so the prophecies are in Isaiah. We celebrate the coming at Christmas time. This week we'll be celebrating the Advent, the coming. Advent means the arrival, the coming of something important. The Advent, the coming of peace in Jesus. So it's Isaiah chapter 9. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 7. And if you don't have a Bible, we've got Bibles that are under the chairs. We'd love for you to have a Bible of your own. You can grab that to follow along with us this morning. We'll be on page 573 in that black Bible. If you want to grab one of those, page 573, Isaiah chapter 9. Um, Isaiah, almost every week we've looked at it, has this promise that we see fulfilled in Jesus, and it's answering something that came in the chapter before. So I encourage you, as we've been studying Isaiah, I encourage you to go back and read the, the broader context. We've been seeing a lot of prophecies of judgment in the book, and then we have these prophecies of hope. And those often go together. We understand the gospel in that context. The goodness and grace of forgiveness doesn't make sense unless there's something wrong, right? And so we recognize that there is something wrong. We're, we're broken and the world is broken. We recognize there's something broken in our own hearts. And we also see that there's just brokenness in the world. And we need a savior. We need a rescuer. We're living in turmoil. We're living in anxiety and worry and we need peace. We need peace that can only come from the outside. And that's what we celebrate in Jesus. So Isaiah chapter 8 prophesies gloom and darkness and distress. And then Isaiah 9 says, but there is peace that is coming. There is light that will dawn and break into this darkness. Let's read Isaiah 9 verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. So these are northern areas. You might, you might say counties, areas of Israel, right? And they'd been through a lot of hard times. And later on, that same region, also Galilee, is where Jesus sets up shop for his ministry in the New Testament. So this prophecy ties in with that. It's tied in in Matthew 4 saying, okay, things are going to happen in this hard, beat-up part of Israel, okay? So Zebulun and Naphtali... It says, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end." on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. 
The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We believe that when we study the scriptures, we're studying the word of God, that the scriptures speak with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. And so now I want to pray and ask that the Holy Spirit would help us to hear from Jesus and hear what he has to say to us from his words. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. We pray that you would teach us from it. Uh, we, we need help. We live in a broken world. We live with anxiety. We live in tumultuous times. We live in difficulty and pain. God, we're hurting, and so we ask for your peace. We pray that your spirit would meet us and help us to see how you come to us in your word, through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we move through this passage that prophesies, again, ultimately Jesus as the answer to all of our problems and that he's going to bring peace to us, the first thing that we want to recognize as we move through the passage in order is that peace comes in the gloom. Gloom is kind of an unusual word. We don't use it all the time. Uh, We've said as we've been going through Isaiah, when you have poetic language in the Hebrew style, they tend to repeat themselves. So if you are reading Hebrew poetry, you're reading the Psalms, you're reading Old Testament prophets, and you come upon a phrase you're not sure about, generally if you read the next phrase, then it'll kind of give you another way of saying it. So here we have gloom, and then we have the repeated phrase of darkness, right? Um, In most translations, it says gloom in the first part. I think I I checked this out. It was in the ESV that I read, the CSB, the NIV. Those are kind of the three most popular uh, modern translations right now. The New Living Translation is one modern translation a lot of people read, and it just says darkness. But gloom has this concept that's maybe a little more than darkness, and it's the idea of kind of a depressing, terrible state. And so the idea is that peace comes to us in that gloom. Sometimes we, we believe that peace is being completely removed from the gloom, like being transported out of this universe. But the scriptures promises that the peace that God has for us is something that breaks into our gloom. Do you see the difference between those two concepts? So repeatedly, the Old Testament stories, we have these stories of men trying to kind of climb out of the pit And the story of the gospel is that Jesus climbs down into the pit with us. And that's the beautiful thing. Now, we still look forward to a time when all gloom will be over. we got to recognize it starts here. It starts with the gloom. It starts with this depressing state of affairs, this broken world that we live in, the junk that we deal with every day. It may be cancer or divorce or just strained relationships. It may be depression. It may be just dreary weather, right? We have some dreary weather today, which is... Texans, we're kind of spoiled by a lot of sun all year long, and then when we have dreary weather, we think the world is ending sometimes. But he comes to us in our gloom. He comes to us in the gloom, and that's where we begin to understand peace. Uh, there's a, a beautiful saying that is used in our recovery ministry. Celebrate Recovery is a Monday night ministry that I would highly recommend to you. They um, help us through just basic Christian discipleship, understanding the gospel, to deal with any hurts habits or hang-ups that we feel stuck with. So I highly recommend that to you. It's not anything, it's not like rocket science. It's basically the same thing we do in all of our small groups, but it's just a little more focused on dealing with the hurts, habits, and hang-ups that we have. And they have this saying that is, God never wastes a hurt. God never wastes a hurt. And so on the one hand, I want to, I want to be very cautious because the scripture is clear in Romans chapter Uh, 13, I believe it is, 13 or 14, where he says that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, right? And so as Christians, we want to make sure that we don't kind of jump into a theology lesson when someone is in a gloomy state. Do you understand what I'm saying? Christians are terrible about this, you know, like, 
my life is terrible. Oh, it's okay. God will make everything, you know, and we just kind of jump off into some Sunday school lesson. We are to rejoice with those who rejoice, and we are to weep with those who weep. So we have to meet people emotionally where they are. And when you're in the gloom, you need to cry with your friend who's also in the gloom. You don't need to just quickly jump to a Sunday school lesson, okay? All right, so I said that part. Now, but, but God, God can do things in your gloom, okay? Now I'm going to give you the Sunday school lesson. God, God can do something beyond that gloom. God can even use the gloom that you've gone through to help other people. That's one of the weirdest, craziest things about how God has wired the universe. And we don't like it when we're in the middle of the gloom, right? I got really sick on Wednesday. When I'm in the midst of suffering and I'm in the midst of pain, I don't say, oh, God, this is glorious and thank you for it because I know you're going to do great things, right? I mean, sometimes I do, but usually I'm just like, God, please take this cup from me, right? Please take this suffering from me. I, I don't want this. Please help me get out of this as soon as possible. Um, so we don't, we don't pray for more suffering, but we should pray that God would meet us in the suffering and that God would give us his supernatural peace in the suffering and in the gloom that we're going through. So the text here says in Isaiah 9-1, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. When you see the, the but, that is a contrast word that tells us he's talking about something he just said in the previous sentence. So let's back up if you have your Bible still open and look at the last sentence of chapter 8. The last sentence of chapter 8, verse 22 says, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. So where does this gloom and darkness come from? They're talking about gloom and darkness in chapter 8. Well, if you go back, as I encourage you, go back and read the broader context of Isaiah. In chapter 8, we're told that there are going to be some people who will look to God and seek him and his word for answers, and there will be others who will go to fortune tellers, and they will try to speak to the dead, and they'll try to seek spiritual answers in other places. And God says they're, gonna, they're only going to find gloom and darkness. It's a very specific warning here. Don't look for spiritual answers in other places, but go to God and seek him and seek his word. And that's what Isaiah and that's what God is calling us to as well here. And then he promises, but there will be no gloom for who? For her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Again, just like you, when I first read this, I don't automatically know what this is, but we can look things up in Bible dictionaries or in study Bibles, and we find that this is the area of Israel where all the foreign armies would march through. So there's this part of Israel that was kind of the gateway into Israel, and they just got run over constantly. And so there was some serious gloom and darkness happening when all these foreign invaders would march through. And he says, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. And the New Testament in Matthew 4 says, this is fulfilled in that this town, this Zebulun, Naphtali, Galilee, again, this little uh, section of the country of Israel that had been run over by foreign invader after foreign invader after foreign invader, light is going to start breaking through there because that's where Jesus sets up shop. That's where Jesus sets up his ministry. It's a very multicultural part of Israel, as you could imagine, right? If, if multiple great empires of the world 
broke in there and then set up forts and then established a new government in that area, it would be a very cosmopolitan part of Israel. Lots of uh, multiracial, lots of multicultural stuff happening there. And Jesus says, that's where I'm going to set up shop. So for them, this little word here, it says, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. For Jews, when they first read Isaiah, they saw that as negative because the nations were all the foreign bad guys to the Israelites, right? God was calling God's people to be pure and holy, and they often didn't fully understand that God was making them to serve the other nations. God's whole point in choosing this tiny little nation, Israel, was to show his power through them and serve the other nations. And so they didn't fully get this until the spread of the gospel through the Christian church in the New Testament. We see this in Acts, where the apostles start then quoting the Psalms and quoting the Old Testament and saying, oh, now we get it. God wanted to save the whole world, not just us. We, we are to serve the rest of the world. So here, this is kind of a negative. This is almost like a racial slur. They're saying Galilee of the nations, right? Where all the pagans, all the heathens are, because all these foreign invaders tromped through there. So it's this gloomy, bad, multicultural place. Yuck. And then Jesus sets up his shop there and begins to reach the nations, begins to reach all peoples of the world through this section of Israel. So God will come into the gloom. At the time, this was a gloomy place. At the time, this was bad. At the time, this was what they thought was the disintegration of God's people. They were falling apart. And so when we're going through gloom, when we're going through difficulty, again, we need to be very careful and not tromp into someone else's gloom and say, I know what God is doing, right? You don't want to be Job's comforters who come into suffering and say, I know what's happening. I'll tell you what God is up to. Slow down. Don't do that. But we do know that God can bring peace through the gloom. We know that God can bring peace into that gloom, into that terror, into these terrible situations. As I said in CR, they say God never wastes a hurt. God can use the terrible things that we go through and we can serve others. Now, most of the terrible things that have happened in my life where I can see God using those, it's usually years later. So it usually takes some time. It usually takes some healing. It usually takes some distance. I think it's perfectly fine, like I said, in the midst of your gloom to say, God, just help me. Just help me get out of this. There's a model prayer that Jesus gave when he was going to the cross, and he said, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. But not my will, your will be done. And that's the tension we live in. And sometimes we pray a little more of the take this cup from me, right? But we also should be praying, but God, not my will, your will be done. I know, I know, I trust you can do something, so God, please bring me your peace in the midst of this gloom. So here's an example of how God does that. He brings peace into a gloomy situation, into a dark, broken situation, and light begins to break through. I grabbed a picture here of a light breaking into a dark room. Can you remember sometime when you were stumbling around in the dark trying to find your way? It's kind of a weird time in history because most of us carry phones with flashlights on them now. So it's, it's kind of interesting. I can remember most of my adult life not having a flashlight with me. And you would often wander into dark rooms and not be able to see your way around. We, we often go through darkness where we don't have a light. We don't, we don't have a flashlight. We don't have something handy to, to show us what's happening. And we're told here that what God is doing is, is like light breaking into that darkness. So I, I just want to speak to those of you that are going through really acute suffering right now, going through something really difficult, and you don't know why. 
and you don't feel like it's okay, and it all just seems really, really negative. It's just really gloomy. It's really horrible. And I just want to say, just call out to God and say, God, will you, will you meet me here? Because I see in the Bible that you're, you're this kind of God that shows up in terrible places. You're not the God that waits for me to climb out of the pit, but you're the God that, that comes down into the pit with me. And so, God, will you meet me here? And that's a really important spiritual principle for us to see. Christians are not the people that have it figured out. Christians are the people that say, God, help me. God, help me. I need your help. I need your grace. I don't need a God who approves of me when I've done everything right because I can't do everything right. I need a God who gives me grace, who gives me forgiveness. Jesus talked about this principle in the Gospels. He would often hang out with the non-religious people, and the religious people were really bothered by that. Because the religious people of Jesus' day thought that God only approved of those who did everything right. And Jesus would come in and preach sermons like the Sermon on the Mount where he said, none of you actually do everything that's right. That's kind of one of the main points of the Sermon on the Mount. And so the religious people would get frustrated with Jesus and they would wrestle with him. And there's this one point where they're frustrated with him for eating with tax collectors and sinners. He was hanging out with the rough people of his day. Jesus heard that they were upset and he said this, those who are well have no need for a doctor. Only those who are sick need a doctor. It's a really important spiritual principle. If you think everything's okay, then you don't need God, do you? You've got life figured out. If everything is fine, you don't need God and you won't see God. The point is not that you really don't need God. The the point is that sometimes gloom and suffering and difficulty helps you to see your need of God. So the scripture comes in and it says, you know what, your, your divorce is just a symbol of a greater problem that exists. Your cancer is just a symbol of a greater problem that exists. Your sickness, your depression, your addiction, it's a symbol of a, of a greater, there's a more significant problem that's out there. And Jesus' point is that the ultimate problem is our separation from God. That's really the ultimate problem that he pointed back to again and again. And so, of course, we want God to heal our, our circumstantial difficulty. Of course, we want him to fix the gloom that we're in right now physically. But there's an ultimate gloom that I don't want you to miss here. There's an ultimate gloom of, apart from what Jesus has done, we're separated from God. That's a, just a really important spiritual principle to recognize. So just for those of you that, that feel like you've got life figured out, I want to appeal to you that we're all spiritually needy and that we serve a God who comes to us in our gloom. No human being ever climbed out of the gloom on his own, but we have a God who came down into the gloom, who met us there, who brings us peace in the gloom. The next thing that we see is that peace comes with joy. Peace comes with joy. Look at this at verse 3 through 5. He uses a few different ways of explaining what joy is like, how we experience it. Last week was, was joy week, our theme of joy. And in that, I reminded you that joy is an actual expression of happiness. And there's a Sunday school answer that's taught to us sometimes that because Christian joy is different than earthly joy, that means that Christian joy is um, invisible and happiness is expressed. You know, like sometimes we just get that stuff all mixed up. No, joy is a real expression of happiness. Joy and happy are the same word in the Bible, just to clarify that. I mean, they mean the same thing. There's two different words, but they mean the same thing in the Bible. They're an outward expression of 
things are good. I'm smiling. I'm laughing. I'm praising God. And that can, for Christians, what makes it weird for Christians is that can come in the midst of our pain and our difficulty. So Christian joy does have this non-circumstantial component to it where everything can be broken and you can supernaturally rejoice in God anyway. But it's not a fall, it's not like an invisible, deep, deep, my old pastor used to say, I've got the joy deep, deep, deep down, right? Like it's so deep spiritually, no one can see it. That's not really joy. If no one can see it at all, it's not really joy, right? So Christian joy, it it can kind of coincide. You can be sad and then happy. You can uh, be grieving and then joyful. And so it can kind of coincide and there can be a tension back and forth, but it's real. You celebrate. He's going to give some ways that people do this in in regular life. He says in verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, Okay, so let me translate that. Most of us are not farmers. We have one farming family, I think, here today. Uh, Most of us are not farmers, so harvest means going to the grocery store. I'll translate that, okay? So we rejoice just like when our pantry is full. You ever do this thing where you just walk into the kitchen, and you're kind of like bored, and then you open up, and your favorite thing is there, and you're like, woohoo, I'm happy now, right? So we rejoice just like going to the grocery store or finding a well-stocked pantry or coming home to your favorite meal, smelling that, and you're you're happy, right? It physically affects you. And then he gives another uh, picture here, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Okay, so this is an army metaphor. Uh, A lot of you are soldiers, but you usually don't get to divide the spoil after a battle, right? (laughs) This was more of an ancient practice. So again, modern translation would begin, would be something more like, uh, the spoil would be the stuff you won in a battle. It'd be like just having stuff. So in a consumer society, it would be like going to Target and, and buying something new. So you rejoice just like when you get something new. Doesn't it make you happy when you get a new gadget or a new toy or a new uh, piece of clothing or something exciting? When we buy stuff, it makes us happy. You're, you're Christians. I know you think you're not supposed to be happy when you buy stuff, but that's a normal human thing, okay? It's all right. He's saying, this is what spiritual joy is like. It's not exactly the same thing, but it's like this. Let me say it this way. Just like our pain and death and our circumstantial struggles point us to the bigger problem of separation from God and our own sin, these little joys paint a picture, point us to a bigger joy of being with God himself. God's always saying, the little joys in life are great. Enjoy them, but glorify me with them. Recognize that the great meal points to me as the one who really satisfies you. So he's saying our our joy is like like these things, like getting stuff, like having food. And then he goes on in verse 4, it's like being free. Look at verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. Um, All three of those phrases are kind of bang, bang, bang in a row. The Hebrew thing where they line up different ways of saying the same thing. These are all different symbols of being ruled over by someone else. A yoke. Uh, would be like the stocks, you know, like when you're chained to this wooden bar, right? And then they would have a rod, they would have a staff of, it says, an oppressor or of this warrior, right? He's talking about people who are beating up on you, the staff for his shoulder, getting whacked on the shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. This is like being a prisoner of war. And he's saying that's going to be broken. How's it going to be broken? The end of verse 4, you've broken us on the day of Midian as on the day of Midian. Again, I'm kind of a regular person like you in a lot of ways. I, I mean, I, I may know more of the Bible than you do, but when I read Midian the first time, I'm like, what is he talking about? We looked that up in a 
Bible dictionary, you look it up in a study Bible, and you find he's referencing to the stories in Judges of Gideon. The Midianites were oppressing the Israelites, and God comes in in the book of Judges, and he says, Gideon, I'm going to use you, one of the wimpiest people in Israel, and I'm going to use you to be a hero and save Israel. How did he do that? Well, here the reference is not so much about how terrible and wimpy Gideon is, but there's a specific thing, I think, that God did with Gideon that's important for us to remember. Gideon rounded up 30,000 soldiers to fight the 100,000 Midianites. And you would say, that's not great odds, but that's better than nothing, right? Maybe they could do it. They're outnumbered three to one. God comes in to Gideon and he says, no, you have too many men. 30,000 to 100,000. If you win that battle, they're just going to say, those guys were studs. They beat them. He's like, and I don't want that. I want them to know that it was the God of the universe that saved you. So he whittled them down, and he whittled them down, and Gideon ended up with 300 men. God says, that's the kind of army I want you to take to fight 100,000 men. That's the way he wants to break the oppression. He wants to do it in this supernatural, unbelievable way so that when the world watches, they say, it had to be God. It couldn't be you and your own strength. So again, this is kind of more bad news, but one of the ways that peace comes with joy is, is God's going to do things in your life in a supernatural way. And that frustrates me, right? I, I want to do things in a Dave way. I want to solve things with my strength. I, I want the story to be about how awesome I am. And God says, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pare down your strength. I'm going to put you on the ropes. We're going to make this a cliffhanger. I'm going to put you in a situation where you don't think you can win. I'm going to put you in a situation where you think, God, this is not how the story is supposed to go. Then you're going to call out to me, and then I'm going to rescue you, and then people will say, look at what God did. I I want you to see that. I know I don't know the specific difficulty that you're going through, whatever it may be. I don't know half of you in this room. But I know that none of us wants, wants to find salvation that way, right? We want to save ourselves. God says, no, I'm going to save you this way, and that's going to lead to real joy. Again, it's, we have joy when we go to the grocery store and get food. That's, that's great. We can celebrate that. We have joy when we buy stuff. But he says, you're going to have this incredible joy, like the joy of a supernatural God saving you from unbeatable odds. That's a, that's a different kind of joy. He goes on and he says, this, this, kinds of, this kind of joy will be the end of all battle and all fighting right? We're, we're out there fighting. We're trying to win it on our own. He goes, I'm going to come in. I'm going to win for you, just like I won for Gideon in a supernatural way. And then he says, ending here in verse 5, this is what it's going to lead to. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. The scripture uh, nowhere condemns soldiering in general, but it does promise that there will be an end to soldiering. So, men, those of you that are soldiers, he's saying there's going to be a day when you won't have to fight anymore, when your work will be done. That will be a day of true joy, when you don't have to just come home and say, I'm home, reunion, okay, now i got to go back out. You'll get to burn your boots. You'll get to burn your fatigues. You'll get to burn your gear. I grabbed a picture here of a, a soldier coming home. I think this was a pilot by his... Uh, He's wearing the wrong uniform, right? He's not one of your guys. He's not, a, not in the army. 
But I picked the picture because I love the picture of him stooping down to, to kiss his baby. One of my favorite things, for those of you that are in the Army, you're seeing your, your reuniting pictures, right, when you come home from deployment, get to hug your kids, get to kiss your wife. It's a beautiful picture. Um, but again, it's just, a, it's just a temporary picture, right? Because you come home, you hug your family, and then you got to go back out again. And he's promising here that there's going to be a day where you just get to kiss your family. And there's, there's no more going back out. That it, it's finished. There's no more war. And that's a day to celebrate. This peace comes with, with real joy. Theologians talk about this concept called already, not yet. There's a sense in that we are already there. We're already there because the ultimate problem in the universe has, is finished. It's done. Our separation from God is the real problem. And God says, now that I've solved that through Jesus, taking your sins upon himself and dying for you, and that brings you into my presence because now you're cleansed. And now your sins are thrown as far as the east is from the west. So now that ultimate problem is settled. And then God says, now the mission for you is to be like Jesus, is to join in his suffering. And so there's this already joy we can have where we say, God has finished the work of bringing me into his family, and he loves me now. So now I don't have to be ashamed anymore. Now I know that God delights in me. I know that I'm one with him. I know I'm in his family, and that changes everything. But there's this, there's this greater joy of getting to be caught up in Jesus' work. And so the peace of knowing that you're reconciled with God will start to make you like Jesus. I think I said this in the first service, like that peace will invite you to join with Jesus, but it's stronger than that. It will actually make you like Jesus. You're going to begin to engage in a supernatural battle where God will call you just like Jesus, who in Philippians 2, it says he had everything perfect. He had equality with God, and he didn't consider that something to be clung to, to be grabbed onto, but he gave it up and became a servant. He came down into our gloom with joy. With joy, he joined us in our suffering to serve us in love. The scripture says that if you believe that, that will start to shape your heart. That will start to reshape you so that you not only have joy in the midst of your gloom and say, I know someday I'll be in heaven and it'll be okay. That's a good joy. But you also have the joy of saying, and Jesus has me on a mission with him in this world. Jesus has me moving through the gloom with him, bringing his joy to other people. Do you, do you see that? that is a, that's a crazy joy. Like that's the crazy uh, Paul and Silas singing in prison, right? They're thrown in jail and they're celebrating that God is at work in their life. How often are we just like, no, I just, I just want things to be more comfortable. But he wants to use you in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of the difficulty that you're going through. That's supernatural joy. That's an alien kind of joy that can only be brought by God's spirit, by God's grace, working through what Jesus has done for us. I want to give you a, a quote from Paul Miller. Paul Miller is talking about one of the classic passages on how peace and joy always go together, and that's Philippians 4, 4 through 7. Um, one of the great ways to cling to God's peace and God's joy in the midst of your suffering is to memorize Scripture. So it is bonded to your heart, because in the midst of your gloom, um, you're not going to feel like it. You're not going to feel like reading the Bible. If you remember scriptural songs, you remember 
scriptural verses that can help you in those moments. So Philippians 4, 4 through 7 talks about how we have this joy, and that joy comes with the peace of God. And that peace of God and that joy comes in the midst of our anxiety. It says, don't worry. The literal translation would be, don't keep worrying, right? So when the worry comes, don't keep worrying, but pray. Well, that's the Dave translation. I just compressed it way down. Memorize the whole thing. But don't keep worrying, pray. And when you pray in the midst of that worrying, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He'll meet you there. Now, Paul Miller says this about that verse. He says, like Jesus, like Jesus who became a man on our behalf, like Jesus, you are completely dependent. Jesus was fully God and fully man, but he lived fully man. He lived in dependence on the Father. He lived in weakness like you and me. He lived in suffering like you and me. So Paul says, like Jesus, you are completely dependent. You needed God 10 minutes ago. You need him now. You get that? You don't stop needing him because you came to church or because you did something spiritual. You need him every moment, just like Jesus did. Instead of hunting for the perfect spiritual state to lift you above the chaos, pray in the chaos. So in the gloom, pray, pray, and God will supernaturally meet you there. The peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, and then you will have actual joy. Not fake, plasticky happiness, but actual happiness, deep happiness that is expressed. You'll, you'll bring joy to others. You'll be joining into what Jesus is doing instead of flying off from the gloom, coming into the gloom, bringing joy into the gloom, transforming the gloom. That's what he calls us to do. A second quote he gives about this kind of prayer, and I love this. This is Paul Miller's book, A Praying Life, a great book I would highly recommend. He says, prayer is feisty. Prayer is feisty. Cynicism, on the other hand, merely critiques. It's passive, cocooning itself from the passions of the great cosmic battle we are engaged in. It is without hope. Do you ever find yourself having those thoughts, those just really deeply negative thoughts playing in your mind? You might be really tired. I was sick this week, and I found that happening. And when I'm really sick, especially if I don't get a lot of sleep or if I'm sick and haven't had a lot of sleep, the more of those thoughts begin to play through my mind. I don't know what the situations are for you. It might be particular relational dynamics. It might be particular reminders of your childhood. It might be something that triggers these things in you. But for me, I started to have these thoughts. You know, the world is against me. Nobody cares. And you just kind of recognize, wow, that's really negative. That's not prayer. That's everything is against me. I have no hope. In, the, in those moments, Paul says in Philippians, don't keep worrying. Don't remain anxious, but pray. Prayer is feisty. Prayer is feisty. So in the midst of the chaos, pray that God would meet you there, and he will bring you real joy. Don't wait for your circumstances to be transformed. Don't wait for God to fix everything. Oh, and then you'll know he loves you. No, it's the, he's the God who comes into the brokenness. He's the God who comes into the craziness. And the more we believe that, the more we trust that and pray that, the more then we'll, we'll be messengers of peace and we'll be messengers of joy to those around us. That's, that's what he wants for us. The last thing I want us to see is that peace comes in person. Peace comes in person, in the person of Jesus himself. Um, he goes on here in verses 6 and 7. Verse 6, 
He says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. You've probably heard this one quoted many times at Christmas time. This is also picking up a theme that Isaiah talked about back in Isaiah 7. So in Isaiah 7, he promises that there is a sign of a child that will come, and that is a child being born to a virgin woman. And so we talk about the Virgin Mary giving birth to Jesus as a fulfillment of that prophecy. And scholars differ on what that means in chapter 7. So just to kind of throw that out for you if you read more and get a little confused, there's, there's kind of three ways to take it. One is just not believing it, so we're not going to take that view, right? And then there's two believing views. One is that there was a near fulfillment in a child that came and kind of fulfilled that but didn't fully fulfill it, leaving them waiting for the fuller fulfillment in Jesus. And that's a pretty normal pattern. Um, and then there's another one that's like, nope, that first kid couldn't have fulfilled it. It had to be Jesus. We're waiting for him. Either way, we would see, and the scriptures, the New Testament makes it very clear, ultimately, Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9 is fulfilled in Jesus. He's the one we've been waiting for. So it may or may not have been partially fulfilled in Isaiah's son. I just want to say his name. It's Maher Shalal Hashbaz. You ever, anyone named their child that? It's a great, it's a great name. I just wanted to say it out loud. Um, so Isaiah had a son, and there were some partial fulfillments that we might see there. But either way, whether it really had much to do with him or not, everybody's waiting for the full fulfillment. We're all waiting for this child to come who fulfills all these other characteristics. Look at these other characteristics that we see here in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. This son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Okay, so he's going to be a ruler, a king. He goes on, and he says, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. What does that mean? That goes back to a council word we saw a couple of weeks ago that is battle strategy. So it'll be like, he's the best soldier in the world. He'll be able to conquer all the forces of evil that will ever oppose him, right? The greatest general ever. He'll be called Mighty God, it says. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So when we see these descriptions of this child, we know it's not Isaiah's son. Right? We know it's not a partial fulfillment of that day. We know that we're still longing for this man who is also God. And that's a really important way to read the Bible as we see these heroes every time we read the scripture. We see Eve is promised that she'll have a son someday who will slay the dragon, who will crush the head of the serpent. And every Bible story after that promise, we're waiting for that son to come. And we get more and more promises about the Son, and these promises show us that he's not just going to be a human, but he's also going to be God himself coming in person to us. Verse 7 says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. It'll just keep overflowing, right? It'll be this perfect government, and it'll be a perfect peace. It won't just be a temporary peace. It won't just be, oh, we've settled things for a little while, and now, now we're going back to war, but it'll be a forever overflowing peace in government. And it says, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it. So this is being spoken in the time of Ahaz, a descendant of David. So a king in the line of King David who was a bad king. And he's saying, yeah, we've had some bad kings in the line of David, but there will finally be a descendant of David. New Testament makes very clear that Jesus was in the line of David, both through Joseph and Mary's side. There will be a king descended from David who will reign, who will actually be a good king. We're still waiting for a good king. None of us have had a good king yet, and Jesus is the good king. He will establish it, uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts 
will do this. His zeal. Another way to translate zeal would be jealousy. There's a good jealousy and a bad jealousy. There's a like, we're crazy for our boyfriend or girlfriend kind of jealousy that's out of control and kind of weird. But there's an appropriate jealousy where you have a strong desire for something that belongs to you. And repeatedly, we're told that God has that kind of holy and proper jealousy, that we belong to him. And in his zeal and his jealousy for us, he is going to come after us. He's going to reclaim what is his. And we're promised here that the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this, this future that we're looking for. And so this is really helpful to recognize that we, we're going to mess it up again and again. We're going to keep blowing this. And I just want to encourage you, because this encourages me on a day when I've blown it, and then on the next day when I've blown it again, and then on that day after that when I've blown it one more time, that it's the zeal of the Lord that will accomplish this. It's not my perfect record that will accomplish this. It's the God who is for me. It's the God who took my place on the cross. It's the God who accomplishes this by his power, for his glory. And so that's the promise that we have here. It's Christmas time, and we all celebrate in different ways. Some people don't even celebrate the holiday, um, but even people that don't celebrate this holiday all love to get presents, right? And if you're not a holiday person, you love getting a gift. And there's this cliche I've heard many times at Christmas time um, that we want to make sure we don't miss the, the ultimate gift. Um, cliches can sometimes be frustrating, right? A cliche is kind of an overused concept, but, but that doesn't mean they're not true. Sometimes cliches are true, and so I just I don't want you to miss this and leave an unwrapped present, so to speak, under the Christmas tree. The, the ultimate gift of Christmas time is Jesus himself. And so when people celebrate with gift giving and all that, those are, those are symbols. Those are temporary joys. Those are fun things. We can celebrate. We can enjoy those. But don't, don't miss the ultimate gift of God himself. Don't miss that, that that's the real gift. Don't miss that your real problem is separation from him and the real solution is Jesus himself meeting you and meeting me in our gloom. I just want to call you to not miss that gift, that ultimate gift, the person of God himself. Peace and joy and salvation are not abstract philosophical terms, but they're a person. They're a person who wants to be involved in your life, a person who comes to us in Jesus. Don't, don't miss that. Come to him, believe in him, trust in him. I'm going to pray for us and we'll respond together in worship. God, thank you for coming to us in Jesus. Thank you that you are a zealous God that accomplishes what you started. Thank you that we can't escape you. We confess that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but you have laid on him the iniquity of us all. We praise you that in your jealousy and in your zealousness, you pursue us and take hold of us in love. We pray that you would give us hearts that respond to you in faith and trust. We would turn from our alternate saviors. We would trust that you are good. We would walk with you in freedom, obeying what you call us to do because we know you're good and we know we can trust you. We pray this in Jesus' name.